I, I knew I wanted to start a company before I knew what company I wanted to okay. start, and that is actually um, that's a dangerous place to be. It's a really sometimes. like problematic way to, yeah. to get into it because I think a lot of people end up in this mode where you're you're a hammer looking for a nail. I had two or three businesses that were just the wrong idea that I tried to incubate while I was in Insight, um, and they were all over the map. Um, but the thing that kept coming back, I was very manually in a combination of Excel and SQL and other tools answering questions like, you know, who are my most valuable customers and where are they coming from and how can I get more of them? Um, you know, how predictable is my revenue? Even if I'm an e-commerce company and no one is subscribing, I have a certain percentage of my customers in any given cohort of users that are coming back at a predictable rate. Can we model this out to have a baseline of how much revenue we can expect from them? After doing it for, you know, uh, a good number of companies, it became evident that 80, 90% of the work I was doing could totally just be programmed. I mean, it could be automated away. Welcome to 14 Minutes of SaaS, the show where you can listen to the stories and opinions of founders of the world's most remarkable SaaS scale-ups. This is episode 112 of 14 Minutes of SaaS, the first of three episodes where I chat with Bob Moore, CEO and co-founder of Crossbeam, a collaborative data platform that helps companies build more valuable partnerships by discovering which customers and leads they have in common. Bob recently expressed a tinge of regret when he saw Looker sell for 2.6 billion to Google. He previously sold OraJ Metrics, which had a four-year head start on Looker for a tiny fraction of that. But he's applied the lessons learned about the power of ecosystems to his latest startup, Crossbeam, a company that's still less than two years old as I record this. This chat took place at the Web Summit in Lisbon, Portugal. And I'll also be introducing Bob to a virtual stage in the inaugural edition of SaaStock Remote a few days after publishing these three episodes. Highly recommended. I'll have the honor of chairing that event for the two-day duration, and I'll be introducing many more past guests of 14 Minutes of SaaS, including Vidyard CEO Michael Litt, Hotjar CEO David Darmanin, you can book me CEO Bridget Harris and Profitwell CEO Patrick Campbell. All SaaS founders, of course. But now to our interview with Bob Moore. We have Bob Moore, co-founder and CEO of Crossbeam, a collaborative platform that helps companies build more valuable partnerships. And he's here with us on 14 Minutes of SaaS here at the Web Summit. Great Delighted to, be here. to meet you, Bob. My pleasure. Uh, delighted to meet you too. Fantastic. Okay, um, you have uh, covered a lot of ground in your relatively short life, uh, comparatively speaking. And um, I would love to know a little bit about you and where you come from. Let's say all the way from childhood up to um, your Princeton years. Sure. Your Princeton years. Yeah. So I grew up in a small town in southern New Jersey, uh, in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, my dad uh, was a college professor, taught uh, public relations. My mom was a bookkeeper at a small local company. Um, went to public school there uh, all the way through um, kindergarten through twelfth grade, uh, and really. Th so this is in an era where I graduated high school in two thousand and two. So if you think about that in the context of technological business history. My formative years 
saw the boom and the bust of the first dot com. So like I'm coming of age and there are these headlines about, you know, overnight billionaires being made. And then by the time I graduate high school, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a much different climate, um, both on the tech side and, um, you know, 9-11 happened in the September of my senior year of high school. Uh, a lot of kind of economic fallout from the first uh, dot-com bust was very much still underway and, and wreaking havoc. And then when I got to the point where I was starting to enter college, very, very different environment. Um, but I still kind of had these seeds of there's something magical about what's going on from a tech perspective. So in high school, I, I taught myself how to code just basic, uh, you know, uh, HTML. I hesitate to even call it code uh, at this point, but back in that day, that, that counted. Um, and was building websites for myself and uh, even started a little web consultancy called Quam Industries in high school where I had a bunch of local clients like you know, a, uh, a sandwich shop and a, a pet store and a auto mechanics garage. I maintained their websites and that was kind of, you know, how I got my lunch money uh, while I was, while I was, you know, in my, so my you, high school years. So you had the entrepreneurial bug uh, from the beginning. Yeah, very much so. I think, you know, my, a lot of my friends were making sandwiches at the local convenience store at the Wawa. Um, and I, I kind of found another way um, and it didn't, it wasn't anything that made me extremely wealthy, but it prevented me from needing to take an hourly job, you know, doing doing harder work. Very good, very good. And uh, what what drew you to Princeton, apart from the fact that, of course, it's a it's a, a yeah. tremendous university. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the, it's local, I guess. Yeah, it, it the stars aligned with Princeton. So my, as I mentioned, you know, I went to a small public high school. We didn't send a lot of people to Princeton. We didn't send. A lot of people to Ivy League schools at all. Um, you know, if you if you went to my high school and you got into Princeton, you went to Princeton. Uh, like that was that was just the way it worked, and it was very much a no brainer because it was not. It was fairly local. It wasn't that far away from where I grew Absolutely. up, so still had proximity to family. But it was also obviously a world class institution that um, had really great programs in, in engineering and um, you know in kind of the the business and economics that are adjacent to engineering. So it was a very natural fit. Okay, and um, you know your initial foray into into I suppose startup world was more as an analyst and an advisor uh, from day one, I believe, to Aviary. Um, so that's like kind of being a silent co-founder in some way, although it's more observational and, and, and more maybe strategic advice. But um, how influential were those that, that little that kind of kind of higher level, slightly more removed exposure. How influential was that? Oh yeah, so that I would put that, um, uh, good job on your research by the way, uh, that's a deep <laughs> cut. Um, so I, I would frame my experience working with Aviary kind of under kind of a broader umbrella of experiences I was having that time because my first job after Princeton was I was a analyst at Insight Venture Partners, which is a venture capital firm based in New York. And I got to know the founding team um, at Aviary uh, because a previous business that Avi Munchnik, the founder there, had created was one I was trying to get my firm to invest in. Um, and it's just the, the stars didn't align. But um, I got to know him and he was getting Aviary off the ground. And um, he has an amazing ability to see great opportunities in the market and build great products. And I had developed some strength around uh, venture capital financing and how to raise money. And I think it really, you know, I, I take... 0.000001% of any credit for any accomplishments of that company, um, aside from maybe helping in the early days around how to frame this business so that you could capitalize it. Um, 
and uh, you know being involved in in the first couple of rounds of financing that, that they ended up raising. So yeah, they, they eventually sold to Adobe. They, they had a really great outcome. Um, and so it was a it good was kind of, yeah, it was, yeah. and, uh, great with the founders, uh, solid for, for the team and advisors. I think everybody around the table was, was pretty happy and getting initially kind of a front row seat to the early formative stages and then getting to be on the sidelines and witness what they were able to accomplish in the later stages. It was great for that time, that very early time when I was starting to ramp up my own entrepreneurial ambitions. So you did make the jump into RJ Matrix, um, which was phenomenally successful and was acquired by Magento, where you headed business intelligence sub subsequently. Talk to me about um, what RJ Matrix set out to solve and why why you went why you went with that particular problem. Yeah, I I knew I wanted to start a company before I knew what company I wanted to okay. start, and that is actually um, that's a dangerous place. It's to a be really sometimes. like problematic way to, yeah. to get into it because I think a lot of people end up in this mode where you're you're a hammer looking for a nail, and at some point you just get uh, so much energy behind the idea of doing anything that you uh, just pick something that's not necessarily all that great. So I actually had a few while I was at Insight. They were an amazing, um, my managers there were great. They knew what I wanted to do. They were supportive of me having these little side hustles. And I had two or three businesses that were just the wrong idea that I tried to incubate while I was in Insight. Um, and they were all over the map. Um, but the thing that kept coming back as what I was doing in my day job and how I was helping people when I was not in my day job in a way that actually created value was actually using what I learned in college, which was all about data analytics, statistics, and the applications of that uh, in the context of business. So my major in college was called operations research and financial engineering. So uh -huh. it was kind of like a mix of computer science and economics and statistics. And when I did my work at Insight, I found that a lot of my time was being spent on the due diligence process or helping portfolio companies answer really complicated questions around their data. Yep. And I was very manually in a combination of Excel and SQL and other tools answering questions like, you know, who are my most valuable customers and where are they coming from and how can I get more of them? Um, you know, how predictable is my revenue? Even if I'm an e-commerce company and no one is subscribing, I have a certain percentage of my customers in any given cohort of users that are coming back at a predictable rate. Can we model this out to have a baseline of how much revenue we can expect from them, which tells us how much you know, more we need to invest to, to get new customers to Absolutely. hit our goals. So all that manual analysis, um, after doing it for you know, uh, a good number of companies, it became evident that 80, 90% of the work I was doing could totally just be programmed. I mean, it could be automated away. So the vision for RJ Metrics was actually to productize the work I was doing as an analyst into a product, and then instead of using it as an investor, sell it directly to the companies uh, and have the operating sure. companies use it to, to Basically, our tagline was always, you know, we're here to help businesses make smarter decisions using their data. Okay. Um, and uh, at the core of that was a cloud-based platform that would pull data out of all your systems of record, put it into our data warehouse, and then once it was there, you could build all these charts and dashboards and things to monitor your business and, and find actionable insights out of that. So would a business look for, you know, uh, ways to reduce their CAC or cost of acquisition of customers by because I don't know this product, by looking to um, looking at where they've been able to uh, get more success, what types of, what size companies, what industries, was it something related to that? Very much. Or? I think the, the innovation there was 
it came in two forms. One was what questions we helped people answer and one was how we actually delivered the service. So yeah, this is 2008 when we started this. Sure. So um, sure, the SaaS as an acronym didn't even exist yet. We were a ASP, application service provider. It was kind no, of the... No, the... It did, it did. <laughs> I was the Salesforce from 2003. Oh, it all right. But it, but it wasn't very common. It wasn't cool. Uh, it yeah, wasn't I think cool, uh, yeah. particularly like operating on the East Coast, like, uh, <laughs> and that shows how naive we were as founders because I think like even if it did exist, it didn't exist as far as we were concerned. Uh, like, <laughs> Which is all that matters. Yeah, which is what you know. What what we knew uh, course, was these these ASP businesses that Insight was looking to invest in. So, and there was still a lot of skepticism around whether or not that was actually a better business model than traditional license and maintenance software models. So, absolutely. Um, anyway, the the delivery of a business intelligence platform via a cloud environment um, yeah. as as a SaaS solution was was kind of novel at the time. I think we were totally. one of the first ones out of the gate. We were spinning up, you know, we didn't have the big public clouds to kind of pull resources from, so we were spinning up like literal every incremental server that we needed. There's like a co-located data center somewhere, and we're like Ooh. tacking on additional Hard. SSD. Solid state drives didn't exist, so oh, we had yeah, yeah, we yeah. were like looking at like the RPMs on the spinning disk drives <laughs> that we were installing <laughs> in these places um, to try and get our, our MySQL servers to like perform better. It was a lot of like. When you think Hard about work. it today, hilarious the percentage of time that went into stuff that is just completely irrelevant for any company starting in that area today. You obviously you know, executed extremely well because you had a great exit into Magento. Did you see another side of business of what happens when you get to a certain scale and, and how to run those operations? Because of course they were still scaling, of course, but they were bigger and more mature. Did you learn a lot from um, having a senior role in Magento? Oh sure, yeah, and I, I'm I'm flattered by the narrative that you know RJ was an overwhelming success and everything. Okay, so, uh, and so I you tell like, me, you tell me. Yeah, no, I think like we we had an outcome there that we were thrilled with, uh, okay. and that I think was like a you know the the story has a really nice beginning point and end point. Did if the you investors draw, have a good outcome? Um, they did at the end of the day, okay. partly because well, that's good. We we spun out a second business from RJ Metrics called Stitch, um, and that company also had a, a really solid outcome a couple of years later and the like either so, one of them individually would have been like kind of a get your money back easy base hit but the combination of the two of them um, you know created a situation that that made it very positive for the investors a little bit of good deal making and timing and kind of double dipping in a couple of ways but it, it all worked out um, but anyway to, to your question about Magento so um, I was I was there for 18 months uh, following the sale and that was an eye-opener I don't think Crossbeam would exist if not for what I saw in that enterprise environment because they had just spun out of eBay and in the you know, two months that they were an independent company before they got reacquired back into Adobe that was when I was there and it was watching the the inherited bureaucracy of having been at a company you know over ten times its size um, and gearing up for and knowing that the eventuality here was that this business would eventually end up inside of something else that was that was bigger but simultaneously doing a, an enormous uh, transformative uh, iteration on the vision for that business like turning Magento into a cloud business as opposed sure. to a traditional open source on-prem business and the technology investments and the narrative and branding investments in that done at scale, I, I you couldn't pay for better education in a denser amount of time. Like I, uh, the team was super sharp, amazing leadership there, and uh, it was very valuable time. Yeah. In the next episode, we'll find out how Bob Moore managed to sell his first company twice: first to e-commerce platform Magento, then to data integration company Talent. You've been listening to 14 Minutes of SaaS, 
thanks to Mike Quill for his creativity and problem-solving skills, to Ketsu for the music, and to Anders Getz for the transcript. This episode was brought to you by me, Stephen Cummins. If you enjoyed the podcast, please don't forget to share it with your network, subscribe to the series, and of course, give the show a rating. Thank you.